What's up, everyone? This week, we're talking to Tamson Webster all about storytelling, big ideas, and messaging. Check it out. In a world where content is king and your reputation is your brand, how do you build a brand that matters? Welcome to Brands on Brands, a home for those that think different and push their boundaries. This is where branding that matters lives. Now, here is your host, Brandon Berkmeyer. Hey, 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 what's up? Welcome to Brands on Brands. I'm Brandon Berkmeyer, your personal branding coach, and today is an interview show. That's right. We get to talk all about storytelling, big ideas, and messaging today with our guest, Tamson Webster. Tamson is a former TEDx executive producer and current idea strategist. So if you've ever seen a TEDx presentation that's gone viral, you could look to someone like her to figure out how did they do it. She's got great coaching for speakers. She also was most recently named to the Thinkers 50 Radar Thinkers to Watch Class of 2022. And she's the author of a book that came out in May 2021 called Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. Great book. We dive into the topics in the book today, all about how to come up with great ideas and how to use storytelling to get those ideas across to your audience, to your customers, to your clients, that kind of kind of thing. Uh, Tamson describes herself as part strategist, part storyteller, part English to English translator, and she helps experts drive action with their ideas. All that and more. Hopefully, you guys are as excited as I am to get into this. And without further ado, let's jump into the show. Brands on Brands. All right, let's get going. I'm excited to bring our guest today, Tamson Webster, to the show. First off, thanks for being here. I am delighted, Brandon. It's lovely to kind of follow up from when we first met. Yeah, I'm excited too. We got to meet in person live at Social Media Marketing World. You were keynoting there. Great presentation. One of the reasons I was really motivated to reach out and, and get to bring your, your perspective onto the show today. What I'm excited to talk about, what we get to dive into today, are topics such as things around big ideas messaging and storytelling specifically, which is all very important for anyone trying to build their personal brand. hundred percent. Yeah. There's so many people that have people and businesses who could benefit from getting better at explaining their ideas. So let's set the stage. If you can help me, what is a big irresistible idea, which is a word that I feel like you say, and why is it important? Yeah. Okay. Well, a big irresistible idea is an answer to a question that doesn't yet have one or needs a better one. And in a lot of ways, that irresistibility is individual. I mean, for someone who has that question, if you've got an answer that is unexpected but makes somehow intuitive, obvious sense, then that feels really attractive to people that really want that. But if someone doesn't have the question, it's not for them. That's fine. I think that actually saves us time. The reason why I think it's so important is because there's a lot of people out there with a lot of questions that don't have answers. And so uh, I find it just really, I mean, I love ideas and I just want to do anything I can to help close that gap between you know, the people who have these questions and these people who have these amazing answers and making sure that they they know who each other is and that they have like found that and and made that connection for themselves. Yeah, I think that's great. I think a lot of us as anyone who's in the coaching space and the mentorship space or in, in the speaking space, 
they try to explain or solve some kind of problem. Absolutely. And, you know, we might have a lot of steps along the way to get there. And I like that this idea of figuring out what's your, you know, moment, what's your way to tell this story and present something in a way that people understand and want to learn, I think is important right now. It's a good message to send. Oh, absolutely. I'd like to ask, so this idea of irresistible to me, I think really is the core of your, of your teaching because we all we might already have ideas. We might not have ideas. Uh, your book's not about like how to generate new ideas necessarily, but making them irresistible, I think is what I've been taking away. And so how, how do you make an idea irresistible? Like, let's start with the concept of it. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, there's a couple of different ways to think about this. I mean, I think the the most straightforward way to explain it is an is an idea that sits kind of in the middle of somebody's curiosity gap, and we can talk about what that is in just a second, is something that's irresistible. And so what I mean by that is, well, I think it helps to understand a little bit more about how curiosity works. Right? And that I think we just think that people are curious or they're not, or we're not really sure what makes people curious, that kind of thing. But one of the things that I found fascinating is I discovered a study that someone did on curiosity, and they found that it was this upside down U curve. So that let's say on the X axis, on that horizontal axis was how expert somebody was in something or how expert they considered themselves to be, how knowledgeable on a topic, let's say. And on the other axis, that vertical Y axis is um, how curious they were to know the answer to something on that topic, right? Like, you know, hey, here's this thing. How, how curious were they to know more? And I, as I mentioned, this, there's, there's this upside down U curve. Now, what was fascinating was that what that means is when somebody considers themselves not expert in something and a piece of information on that topic is introduced, they're actually negatively curious about it. Like they they actually don't want to know. And I think a lot of times as, you know, as solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, salespeople, leaders, whatever, we think that if we're just mysterious enough, just remarkable enough, people will want to go explore. Well, that the data doesn't support that. Like that's actually not how it works. And you know, one of the reasons why is because you know, one of the most powerful drivers of us as humans is to be seen as, as I like to say, smart, capable, and good. So when something comes at you that you just don't understand you don't feel smart and capable or good about the fact that you don't know. And so it's actually a lot like it's a self-preservation technique to go, yeah, I'm actually not interested in that. So that's one side of the curve. And then it arcs in the middle. I'll come back to that. And then it drops back down again and back into negative territory. And where it drops back down in negative territory is when somebody considers themselves quite expert on a topic, right? And then you introduce something and they're like, yeah, I've already, I already know the answer to that question. I am also, again, not curious. So this is one of those things where if, if you come out with an idea or a product or service that feels like somebody has seen it before, right? Or where it's just, they're like, yeah, not new that, or that's not unfamiliar to me in any way not going to be interested in, again, they're going to be negatively curious. They're going to actively go look for something else. So that irresistible piece is in that magic middle where somebody knows enough about a topic to know that they don't have the answer and are still curious to find out more. So that means, like, if we take this back to, okay, great, Tamsin, what do you do with your own messaging about that? It means we need to find this beautiful combination of something people want right? How what you do delivers something people want that kind of gets them interested. They're like, oh, yeah, I have that question. So something that they want via a means they don't expect. In other words, it's something desired. I want it. 
but there's something that's different about it so that I see the question I want answered, but the answer is unfamiliar, not understandable, but unfamiliar, right? So for instance, when I talk about even just this idea, I say, you know, the best way, the opening line of the book, like the best way to drive action from your ideas, that's what somebody might want, right? That's the desired piece. And the different piece comes in when I say, is to build the stories people will tell themselves about it. And people are like, okay, I understand what you're saying, but I haven't heard that before. So what does that mean, right? And because it's something that they actually, they want the answer to, and I've given them an unfamiliar kind of intriguing answer that's still intuitively understandable, then we've opened that curiosity gap in a way that they're like, now I want to know more. So I think, you know, yeah, there's, I could talk about this for ages, but I think that's the simplest way to say like an irresistible idea is something that delivers something people want via a means they don't expect. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's, there's things that people might want or need that would be obvious, like they know they need it already. And you as someone who's ready and willing to help them with that thing, still aren't able to crack the code because yes. of how you talk about it, because yes. of how the idea is presented. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many people like before I started a podcast were like, you should start a podcast. And it's not that I didn't know that podcast was something I could do. Right. But I think finding the the story for me, what made it work for me and why I would want it was definitely a part of that that journey. I'm curious, like, what was it? What was it that clicked in your mind that finally meant, oh, well, of course, how could I not do a podcast? So let me try. What was that thing that you told yourself? Well, I think for me, it was, you know, I tried, I was trying things and dabbling in them anyway. So when they were saying you need one, I was like, well, I, I basically have done it, but I go, I'm not, it's not necessarily scratching the itch, which for me was, I want to be good at sharing my ideas at first. That was what I thought I wanted, right? I was like, I'm trying to get good at sharing my ideas. This podcasting thing seems to be like, I can speak well. But what I think really turned the the corner for me was I saw someone doing podcasting in a way where their influence was growing. Like they were mm. getting into rooms that I couldn't get into. They were speaking to thought leaders that I wanted to talk to and get to know. And networking, their network was blowing up. And I was like, how are you building relationships so quickly with these people? And you have no reputation that I have heard of. And they're like, well, podcast. They're like, I have a platform that I can say to people, not like, hey, can I pick your brain over coffee? I could say to them, hey, I have this show. You'd be perfect for it. I love to share your perspective with my audience. It was an unlock. And yes. I was like, man, like how they're approaching this, their goals is, is different. I love that. Yeah. It changed the way that I wanted to build a show and it changed the way that I thought about the the concept in general. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it came to a point where some part of your brain was like, oh, okay. Podcasting is a platform for natural partnering, right? Like it's not, it, there's nothing forced about it. And it sounds like for whatever reason, like that partnership, that networking, that piece became really important. And so you can figure that piece out. So it's that, you know, the reason why I asked that question is because it's, there is always a story behind our decisions, right? I, I you know, I say this in my talks and I, I, I'm not sure I say exactly this way in the book, but, you know, that every decision has a story behind it. And the challenge is a lot of times our brain has dumped that story, right? Our brain just remembers the beginning and the end. It's just like, okay, I want to grow my business podcasting and didn't go through that path of like, well, why? Like, why that? And 
the reason why it's so important is if we do the same thing when we explain our ideas to other people and we only give them the beginning and the end, we're leaving out a really important part of the story, right? It's the equivalent of saying, you know, if we're talking about Star Wars, like there was once this bratty kid named Luke that wanted to get off a of Tatooine and he ended up, you know, blowing up the Death Star and saving the galaxy. And you're like, okay, <laughs> what? Um, all right. Now, to somebody who already knows that story, that makes sense. Someone who goes, well, yeah, that's accurate. But for someone who doesn't, hearing that doesn't make you go, oh, I understand and I want to know more. Now, we do the same thing a lot of times when we talk about our ideas is we just give people the beginning and the end. We say, oh, you want a better way to grow your business? Well, have I got the answer for you, podcasting. And as you yourself said, just having the answer isn't enough. We have to have something that that allows us to build that story we can tell ourselves about why that particular approach, that particular answer is the right one for us. And I'd say that really, that kind of skipping over the reasoning behind something, which isn't features and benefits, by the way, but the actual kind of deeper principles behind like that, this argument that we've had with ourselves about why it's the right idea. When we surface those, oh, it's so powerful because it's in, it's, it's in those principles, like why you do what you do in that particular way. That's what people actually connect with and align with because if something doesn't agree with my principles, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it long-term, but if something does, ah, that makes me feel even more smart, even more capable, even more good. Yeah. And I think that there's definitely some realization there that there's, you know, you have a lot of probably different audiences that they each have their own motivation. It's a bit individualized, Yeah. but you might be able to capture some common things along the way that, you know, as you group them there, you know, then the messaging can change. Yes. hundred percent. And I find that one of the best ways to group your messaging is around the questions that people ask, right? Because that cuts across demographics, psychographics, segments, whatever. I mean, basically you say, I answer these questions, like through my products, through my services, whatever. And if you can build your messages kind of starting with those questions as the starting point, it really starts to make it clear. It's kind of like, you know, imagine where in the world are you, Brandon? Where's your Where's your home base? Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, the Triangle. Yep. Lovely. That's <laughs> a lovely place. My stepson lives there. So, uh, actually, in Chapel Hill, but it's all close. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's say, right, that your idea is 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 Raleigh. <laughs> like, like that's where you're trying to get people, right? In order to try to get people to convert, to buy, to support, to get invested in your idea, figuratively or literally, you need to get them to Raleigh. And this idea of dividing your messaging based on the questions, it's kind of like dividing your messaging based on where else in the country people are, are so that you can get them to Raleigh, right? And what's important about that is to say, Raleigh never changes. It doesn't move. But how you get people to Raleigh is going to be really different depending on whether or not you're talking to somebody in Asheville, North Carolina, which is not very far away, versus somebody in Boston right? Versus somebody who's in, I don't know, Maui, right? And so your idea doesn't change, but depending on that question people are asking, the route to your idea, the message that you give them to get them to your idea is going to be quite different, though ultimately it's always going to end up in the same place. 
Right. I can see that if, if it's like, hey, you live in a very expensive town and you want to come somewhere that's, you know, still a city, but not as expensive, come here. But other people might be, hey, do you want to go somewhere that has all these great colleges or whatever? Like everyone might have their different reason to want to be here. That's right. And from where they're starting, right, as long as you like, as long as you feel like your idea, in this case, Raleigh, like absolutely delivers on that question that they have you know, that's the only check, right? It's not a bait and switch. It's not like, hey, I knew you were trying to go to Dallas, but I'm going to get you to go to Raleigh instead. No, it's basically saying based on that thing you're looking for, right? Kind of a, a city feel, you know, a, a Southern city feel, right? Then you're like, Raleigh checks the boxes on that. So let's, let's talk about that, you know, versus, yeah, I want to find a great college town or I want to find, you know, I don't know, all these other things. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher, right. And I want to go to a place where there's a lot of folks that are, you know, in my field, any of those things are reasons to bring them there. As long as a, they're the answers to that question, your idea actually does answer that question. And B, you've got some clarity on what those questions that your idea answers actually are because that people kind of, they need it's back to the idea, you know, the definition of my definition, at least of an irresistible idea, they need both the question and the answer. They need to know that this both provides the thing that they're looking for and what is the thing that provides it, right? Like they need both of those things. Yeah. I, I think that's really clear. And I think we can get into some of the concepts of, you know, the elements of storytelling but before that, I'd just like to kind of throw it out there. I think storytelling isn't a new concept per se. I think a lot of people talk about it. Uh, we've heard of the hero's journey, that kind of thing. But what would you say is the reason that storytelling is so difficult or what keeps people from using it in their business more? Oh, there's so many places. Again, again, so many places I, places I could go with this. All right. What makes it difficult? I think that the the I, what I've seen is the primary reason why it's difficult is that we we focus more on the form of story than the function of those elements, right? And so, what do I mean by that? And you mentioned the hero's journey. Well, two things can happen if you think story equals hero's journey exclusively, which it doesn't, by the way. Hero's journey is one structure of, you know, it's a it is a very common story. That's why it's a it's a it's a good one. It's a good go to it's a good first place to go but it can also be quite limiting and i think that's one of the reasons why it can be so difficult so what do i mean by that well first off you know a true hero's journey is depending on what you're looking at like 7 to 12 steps and i would say to your average business storyteller whether that's a leader or an entrepreneur or a marketing person like my gosh, trying to figure out like how like your particular thing fits into all seven to 12 steps is a lot. And that's one of the benefits of, you know, somebody's approach like Donald Miller's story brand that simplified it, right? He he simplified it to, to slightly fewer than seven. And so that makes it a little bit easier. But then that starts to bring in something else because it still is one kind of a story is that, and that a hero's journey does, you know, is really about a very specific thing. It's about a person who wants a thing that has to overcome odds to get that thing. And that the hero is the one that saves the day. So this implies a lot. It implies the fact that the hero actually can solve this thing. The hero themselves saves the day and that one solution can solve the problem. Well, I do a lot of work with 
expert in both individual experts, people who are founding like impact-based startups and nonprofits and folks like that. And you know, one of the things that makes it so difficult is they're like, well, there isn't a villain. And we can't, we're not the hero and one person can't solve climate change. So how can we possibly make this work? And what ends up happening is people kind of throw their arms up and go, it just doesn't work. We're just going to go back to our bullet points and data, <laughs> right? And so this, that was, that's super frustrating to me because, oh my gosh, the reason why, you know, we, I think a lot of us have become familiar with why stories is so important is because our brains create stories, not necessarily once upon a time hero's journey stories. But what I mean by that is stories in the form of kind of causal explanations, cause and effect explanations of why things happen the way they do. We do that automatically from birth without words pre-consciously like we don't even know that we do it and so the whole idea is that like when you can put information like why what you do and why it's important into a structure that your brain recognizes as a story right it can be such a powerful way to get your message across cleanly clearly without distortion and with maximum understanding right who doesn't want that but when you're trying to use a form that doesn't fit your situation again your your solution is too complex or the problem is too complex where a single hero can't save the day a single solution can't solve it it can feel like there's nothing out there for you and so that was a main reason why I wanted to take the approach that I did when I started to tackle this idea of of storytelling and that was let's look at the elements of story that are that are present in every kind of story hero's journey love story you know monster in the house like whatever you know western like I mean there's so many different ways to think about it but every story has certain elements and so if we could break down ideas into those core universal story elements, um, then we had a way, my idea was that, and there are only five, and actually it's really only four that are super critical. It became a way that we could take even really complicated information and make it feel like a story. We could tell stories that didn't have endings. We could tell stories that weren't reliant on a single hero or a single solution. And we could tell stories that were appropriate to the scale of problems, both big and small. And so that was really what I was trying to do. And so far, it seems like it's working that way. So that was good. Yeah. I mean, I like that because I think we often hear, well, that people aren't using the structure and then you show them the structure and they're like, well, that seems intimidating because this is right. This and massive... they're like, oh my gosh, what's this rising yeah. action, falling action, cuddle. I'm like, it doesn't, it, it's not that hard. Like it, right. it doesn't need to be that hard. It doesn't yeah. need to be that hard. Like, Unless if you you're go writing like, a three hour movie, then yeah, yes, sure. Right. Go for it. And even then they don't, it's not that hard. Right. Like, so because that, you know, that, that was my background. I mean, my background was in, is, is in, is, you know, I, I have you know, both an undergraduate and a graduate business degree. Like I've, I've been in brand and message strategy for like over 25 years now, a lot of times in nonprofits and these people are busy. Right? So I'm, you know, work with lots of academics and kind of technical folks. And I wanted to figure out how could I make this, turn this into something where A, didn't feel like a very heavy lift, but B, could also be framed in the form of questions that people could answer. Like, like, what question is your audience asking <laughs> like that your product or service answers? 
What's the real reason that that they're not getting that answer from currently available options? All right. What do you believe, right? That you know that uh, about that problem, right? That makes your solution the only one that makes sense to you. Now, how can we make that be something that your audience already agrees with? And then finally, how does that all add up to like what's the big change in thinking or behavior that your idea, service, product, whatever it is, represents? Those are the four things, and. Generally, you know, again, based on my experience, those are questions that you know they may not always be easy to answer because sometimes it takes some digging, but they are straightforward and they are in the in line with the way that that business owners, marketers, salespeople, entrepreneurs already think, right? What do people want? Why aren't they getting it now? How am I looking at this differently? Why do I think that's the right way to look at it? How do I sum this all up for somebody else? That's how people are thinking. Why? Because that's the story brain at work. Like you need those pieces of information to make anything make sense. And so this is, it's really an excavation process, going back and either kind of rediscovering what your own thought process was behind your product or service, or at least reconstruct like a dramatic recreation of it, reconstructing it so that somebody else can follow at least a very similar line of thinking to get to your same position, right? So that's why it's helpful to hear, you know, someone like you, Brandon, say like, well, why did you get into podcasting? And what was that thing that you heard finally that allowed you to go, that's why? Because somebody else who's on the fence and who like knows the, you know, hey, podcasting, if they haven't heard that piece of reasoning that really aligns with who they are, right? Oh, it's a natural platform for partnerships. Okay. All right. Then they can start to go, okay, that was Brandon's reasoning. But then now, because that makes sense with how I see the world, that's going to be my reasoning too. So those core elements, those universal elements, are they can make what is otherwise feels really difficult, make it feel, again, if not easy, at least much more straightforward and achievable um, for even folks that don't consider themselves to be quote unquote natural storytellers, uh, because we all are, by the way. But we have to put it into a format that people feel comfortable with in order for them to really get the maximum benefit of that form. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I think this might be the moment where people want to like rewind and figure out like, what did I just miss? Because there's a lot there. But if you are thinking about the format she was just talking about, after you've established your goal, it was problem, truth, change, and action. And all of these are detailed in her book, The Red Thread, How to Find and Tell the Story of Your Ideas. This came out, what was it? May of 2021? Yeah. And there's a real, like, if you really want to deep dive and double click into that stuff and, and each of those lines, because you can only get so much in a podcast, definitely go out and get the book. It helps, I think, th- you know, the regular people out there, the people who are just trying to make their business work and solve problems, helps us figure out how to get our messages across. So I think there's there's definitely a, a moment to pause here. Make sure you're putting these books you know, into your your cart. So thank you for, for allowing me to talk about that for a second. The other thing I want to mention is if we can dive a little bit deeper into the truth part, because for me, this was, I think, what's the most interesting kind of light bulb when I'm going through this stuff is the discovering a truth that demands a choice. 
for me, I'm like, I can find a lot of truths, but when you say demands a choice, it makes me think a little bit. So maybe we can dive into like, what does it mean to find a truth that demands a choice? Yeah. So the the reason why the truth is one of those five elements, um, it's a goal, problem, truth, and truth is the one that most people skip, by the way. A lot of times we just do problem solution. But if you look at stories like you know, movies, books, you know, once upon a time stories, those stories we tell other people, every single one of them has what is generally known as a moment of truth or you know, screenwriters may refer to it as the penny drop moment. Uh, Aristotle referred to it as the anagnorisis, which I love. And the anagnorisis, that name for it kind of gives us a little bit more hint about what it's really about, because the the, the translation of anagnorisis is recognition. And the reason why that thing happens at that moment or what happens in that moment is that in storytelling, that's the moment that the main character recognizes, as Aristotle says, the true nature of their circumstances. So there's some piece of information that's either recalled or revealed that kind of suddenly goes, like takes the whole world and flips it upside down in a way. And it's like, oh, well, wait a minute. Dang it. And the thing is that it, when that realization, if somebody you know, has it and then agrees that it's true, done well, it should absolutely put what they want in complete jeopardy. And so that's why it demands a choice because you have to choose at that moment. Do I not believe this thing that I believe? Unlikely, very difficult to get someone to unbelieve something they believe. Do I not want the thing that I want anymore? Again, also unlikely, very difficult to unwant that a thing that I want. But Sometimes in that moment, some can someone can deprioritize. Um, or the last thing is, or do I need to shift my thinking to do something else so that I can resolve this tension between what I want and what I believe? And that's where when I come to like creating a way to talk about your ideas that makes them irresistible, that's why that truth statement, as I like to call it, is, is so critical. So a lot of times at this point, people are like, well, what's an example of that? Well, my favorite example of a truth statement that everybody already knows is the De Beers diamond tagline, a diamond is forever. Now, if we back up and we kind of put it into those elements of the story that we were talking about, you know, we talk about, all right, first piece is a goal. I'm saying this now you know, several times, like that's an audience question. So this isn't De Beers's goal. It was the goal of their audience back in 1937 when this tagline first came out. Or was it 47? I think it was 47. And, and we could state that goal as, you know, what's the best symbol of this commitment that we're making with each other? You know, talking about engaged or betrothed couples. Um, all right. That's the goal. Something people want, don't yet have. Like, what is the best symbol for our impending commitment? problem that they didn't realize they have. Now, in this case, you know, De Beers didn't say this out loud, but it was what De Beers kind of, I think, intuitively understood needed to be felt as a problem by their audience. And so the tension that, that De Beers, again, they didn't have the red thread. So, you know, retroactively, I'm assuming they were trying to create was a tension between the status quo, which was really to focus just on an unbroken circle of metal. The ring was the best symbol because, by the way, it's a very good symbol. It's a, it's a circle with no beginning and no end. That's a really good symbol of forever, by the way. But De Beers wanted to create a tension between that and the kind of ring. Because if De Beers could get people to start thinking about the kind of ring, then they could get them thinking about diamonds, right? So they needed to introduce something that, that kind of 
popped people off the status quo. And so they went looking for something that people, you know, I don't know if they looked for it, but what they stumbled upon was something that people already believed in a different context. And it's the already believed in a different context that was, it's just the magic of that piece. Because you notice it, it isn't that a diamond ring is forever. It's just, a, which would be arguable. People could be like, well, well, I don't know. I could lose it. Not that. You know, plenty of people with diamond rings where the relationship didn't last. But when you say a diamond is forever, most people, based on their own experience or knowledge, would go, that's true. But you see what it does in that moment. If I want the best symbol, and in to date, I had only been focused on that metal circle as the symbol of forever. And yet I also agree that a diamond is forever. I kind of have to choose now. Do I not want the best symbol? Because now it's out there. Like it's a public tagline. Like my partner probably has heard it too. Do I want to believe, like, do I not believe that a diamond is forever? Back in 1947, it worked really well. These days, it's not as strong of a, of a truth, but it certainly was at the time. Or do I want to shift how I'm thinking about this and say, you know what? I can have my cake and eat it too, or my ring and diamond too. I can have my, I could double down and have a forever, forever ring by having a ring, unbroken circle, with a forever diamond on it. And in that moment, that change comes into view, which is, ah, I need to see that I can see the stone as the symbol too. And as many symbols as I tack onto this ring, the more that it becomes the best symbol for us. What's the answer? Well, because a diamond is forever, why don't I just action buy a diamond ring? So this, this idea of this kind of core principle, this what psychologists call the silent assumption, this thing that you believe to be true, but you just haven't really brought it forward inserted appropriately like into how you are explaining an idea can just be absolute magic and be that thing that makes not just the idea irresistible but it can make the action on it irresistible as well yeah i, I think it's a great example i the thing that comes to mind is we i had a, a guest who wrote this book flip the script there it is yeah and he he has this whole idea of like inception is basically what the book is about because he had yeah. written something called pitch anything which was the old yep. way of selling yeah and then the new way of selling was inception like you have to make it their idea um, and a lot of the concepts are you know they they talk about the same truths that you're talking about which is it's the idea that like people like they're they're discerning these days they are smart they already have truths that they have embedded in them so finding a way to almost make something their idea because it it resonates with something that they already believe absolutely makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean and that's you know it's 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 one of those things when you hear it you're like, well of course and yet like that's not in a lot of ways what we've been taught, right? Because you know the thing is we, you know, if every story every decision has a story we believe, right? We may not realize it, but it's that's that's the case. Like, you know, we, we have, you know, I, I say in most of my talks that we're not rational decision makers, we're rationalizing decision makers. We tell ourselves stories to justify what we do. And we don't, you know, sometimes we do that out loud. You're like, I needed it. Um, but sometimes, you know, sometimes that happens without us even realizing it. And those stories are based on beliefs either. And, and they are based on beliefs that are in many cases, incredibly longstanding. And the thing we need to understand when you're trying to, you know, quote unquote, change someone's mind or sell something or whatever, is that the longer someone has believed something, the stronger the belief is. 
But there's something really important that, again, is obvious if we stop and think about it, but we just haven't thought of it this way, is that you do not have to convince someone of something they already believe. So if you can make your product or service, if you can tell the story of it using ideally only principles that your audience already believes, then you've got almost just a you know, absolute slam dunk of an argument for your idea because you just haven't had to, you know, the work that you have to do is to put these incredibly familiar concepts together in an unfamiliar way. And that's how you get someone to consider something new and simultaneously raise the likelihood that they will actually act on it because that new thing actually feels like a natural extension of who they see themselves to be, how they see that, how they think the world works, all of that. And so that's what I'm truly fascinated in about right now is like, how do we do that? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I mean, part of this is we have like, we're starting to have infinite choices in a lot of the things we do. So that creates, I think, a lot of paralysis in terms of figuring out or being motivated and figuring, like hearing a truth that helps you set a priority when yeah. decision-making and picking one thing over the other totally resonates with me. I do want to like, as we're kind of coming towards the back end of the interview here, I want to ask a little bit about your personal story and uh, not like, you know, you know, your parents and where you grew up and that kind of stuff, but (laughs) which is fine. I'm sure you've done that on podcasts, but really just because there's a lot of people that are out there trying to build their reputation that are trying to make it as a speaker, an author, a coach, whatever it is. And you have actually helped people train them, get them on stages, make their ideas crisp for a TEDx stage, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd love to hear your experience because at some point you decided to, to transition into this kind of realm of thought leadership yourself, you know, writing a book, getting out there, speaking on stages yourself. I'm curious for you, what was that journey like uh, as someone who trained other people? And were there any moments along the way where like, you had the soul search and figure out like, this is what I need to do to make this work? You know? Oh my gosh, so many. Yeah, I mean, I think, so where did it start? So, I mean, I I was a company girl for a really long time. So I, I worked in organizations for, I'd say the first 15 plus years of my career. So lots of, you know, started as a management consultant and then, but worked in higher education, arts, um, arts, higher education, museums, all of this kind of stuff. And, and in the process of doing that, you know, I was always trying to figure out how can I make my, the core of my job easier, which is how do I take things that might be uh, technical to people in the case, like when I worked at Harvard medical school, like, you know, this is, this is, this is, you know, it's called basic science, but it ain't basic to anybody else who's not a scientist. How do I make that understandable to people? How do I, you know, when I worked at a, at a, at a conservatory here in Boston, a, a performing arts college, um, there's three conservatories in Boston. Like, how do I, how do I differentiate us? Like, and how do I do all of this with really teeny tiny budgets and tiny staffs? And so, you know, what I found was, so I just, I was just obsessed with trying to figure out, like, I don't have time to figure out like all of these channels all the time. Like, what is it about people that makes them make decisions in a certain way? And what can I do to make that better? And the thing was, is that once I started to figure some of this out, uh, and a lot of that, by the way, was helped by the fact that I was all this time, well, for 13 years of that time, I was moonlighting as a Weight Watchers leader. So I was seeing in a really different context what worked to to get people to make 
big long-term changes in their thinking and behavior, which wasn't what I was taught, by the way. So it's kind of that, you know, and again, this is where I started to realize like, this, this is not, <laughs> this is not about changing people's beliefs. This is about anchoring in them instead. A lot of that came together with stuff that I thought would be useful to other people in my industry. So really was about 17, 19 years ago now, when I was at Harvard Medical School, where someone, you know, kind of industry conference just said, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing? You seem to be doing something a little bit different at the medical school with how you're doing, you know, development fundraising. How can you show us? And so that's really where I started speaking. I was like, sure. Um, well, that's how I started speaking on stages. By the time I stopped being a Weight Watchers leader, mo moonlighting, I did the math and I had done there 3,000 presentations um, over the course of that time. So I got really comfortable with talking to people, talking to groups of people, doing Q&A, uh, taking non sequiturs from people and like working them into everything else with taking a short piece of, you know, in a short amount of time, figuring out how to get the biggest mental, create the biggest mental movement in a really short amount of time because the meetings were only ever a half an hour, 45 minutes. And so I took those lessons, honestly, from the, meet, the Weight Watchers meeting room, put them into this kind of industry presentation, and then just started tinkering from there. And then continued to speak because it turned out that that was a great way to kind of share the knowledge. Then when I flipped over to the agency side of things, um, by talking about what we were doing and how we were thinking about things, it was a great way to develop business. Um, so I'm a big fan of what my husband and I call free noting, which is, you know, speaking for free uh, in order to generate business, but not selling from the stage, by the way. And so I, kind of, I was kind of in the middle of that, in the middle of agency life where a friend of mine happened to be the executive director of TEDx Cambridge, which is the oldest, it was the first license uh, given for the those independently organized TED Talk events. Um, and he asked me if I want to be the executive uh, director, uh, the executive producer. And so because it's like, hey, can you take what you do as a speaker yourself and help other people figure out how to how to how to do that? And I was like, well, I'm not a speaker coach. You know, I, I know some stuff that I've learned and I can share from that. I said, but what I'm really interested in is, is kind of transferring these ideas. And so that's where I started that deep dive into storytelling. That's where the, the earliest versions of my red thread approach started. That's where I found these five things. It was in that, and in that context that I started testing this with people. It was around that same time, um, a few years after I started TEDx Cambridge that I went out on my own because I found that I just really loved this idea and message strategy piece because it was the piece that I saw even back in my earliest days in marketing and sales, the thing that was what I always loved, like what is powerful? How do I make this amazing thing that we're doing here understandable to other people? And so it really has been this evolution of kind of building my skills as what I like to call as English to English translation. And it's just, you know, once I really picked that focus and started to just drill down on that, just everything that I do is really about like enriching my knowledge on what makes that all happen, what makes it all better. And then what's, how can I transmit that to other people in a way that they can recreate the experiences that I've had, the success that I've had with that um, and make their own ideas irresistible to everybody else. I mean, it sounds really organic, which is nice because it's not like usually it's this, I, you know, I was going along and, uh, and then I hit a wall, like, you know, our story, our normal storytelling. Yeah. 
and then you know you had to figure something out but it really sounds like it was more organic and gradual than that along the way. I mean, yeah, it was. I mean, there was, I mean, there were those moments of like, oh crap, I have to go do something else. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was a management consultant, you know, I had a performance review. This is in Dallas. It's, I'm sure, maybe it's not Dallas. I think it was just this company where I, in a performance review, I was told to do my hair and wear more lipstick and oh, by the way, lose some weight. I, I weighed more than. And I was like, this is not my place. And so I was kind of like, okay, I need to go. So kind of like that first big choice was like, do I continue in like management consulting, which pays very well, by the way, or do I take a 50% pay cut and go back to what I love, which is the arts. And ultimately I took the 50% pay cut. And then, you know, then there were some organic things. I just kind of grew out of one position, decided to, you know, go to the conservatory, wanted to kind of figure out, like, if I want to be the head of institutional advancement someplace, I needed to figure out this fundraising thing, which is why I went to the medical school. Then when I was at the medical school, I had, uh, I went out on maternity leave. This is probably an, an unfortunately familiar story. My boss changed while I was on maternity leave and the agreement that was in place on what my work schedule would look like coming back. Uh, the new boss didn't honor it. So I was like, okay, like I need to work, need to also send my child to daycare. So this is not going to work for me. And so I, you know, had to find, you know, a, another thing pretty quickly. Thankfully, the agency that I had hired to work for, uh, work with us at the medical school was like, do you want to come work with us? I was like, sure. And I think the last big kind of crisis point, inflection point was, was, what made me go out on my own. And that was, you know, I had already started working with TEDx Cambridge. I had already started doing some of this kind of individual idea strategy. And the company I was working for was like, great, let's like build like a new arm of the business onto this. And I was like, great. So I get equity. Do I get a raise? Do I get a title? No. Okay. Well then, no. <laughs> if it's strong enough to build your business on, I'm gonna bet gets. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna bet on myself here. I'm gonna bet that it's strong enough to build mine on. So even though it may sound organic, there were some points where I was absolutely like forced quickly out of the nest and was like, let me figure this piece out. Um, but I would say in every case, you know, back to some of the things that we've been talking about, it it really came back to. What am I about? What are the questions I'm trying to answer? What are the things that I believe? What do I, where do I really want to spend my time? And where do I really feel like I have something to offer? And if I can double down on that, then I'm feeling pretty secure because, you know, one of the things I always used to say to my Weight Watchers members was that the biggest leaps start from the surest ground. And so if you can really figure out like what your most stable pieces of you are, whether that's skill sets or principles or, you know, audiences or net, whatever it might be, start where you're strong and then go rather than try to like go someplace completely new and try to build everything up new. What can you build on, you know, that from what you've already got? Now, that doesn't mean you don't make big changes and quantum leap changes, but it's still grounded in the, in the things that are the strongest for you. And because they're the strongest for you, they're probably the things that actually set you apart. So it may be scary, but they, it's almost always a, a recipe for, for future success for so many reasons. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that there's some lessons in there too for people to take away just about a little bit of preparation, meeting opportunity. I think you develop skills along the way that really set you 
up for success. And then, so I'm getting a lot of that too. And then on top of that, I think there's like making very intentional choices is something we could all do a little bit more, I think, you know? Uh, So I appreciate that. And uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I'd love to, to, to ask, what are you excited about for the future? I just, you know, it, it is, I love exploring like why things work the way that they do. So what I, I'm really excited about is just, is, is this, you know, evolution of my original idea that's behind the red thread in the first book. Yeah. It started, there's this kind of new one taking shape and I'm really excited about where that's going. Um, because the people that I talk to about it are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Never thought of it that way, but that seems like a, a really interesting thing. And it's just really you know, diving even deeper into that kind of every story, you know, every decision has a story we believe piece and really looking at this fact that, that what are these beliefs? How can we reduce, you know, to, in order to make our ideas clear to other people, um, how can we reduce them to these core foundational principles that your audience, your ideal audience already understands and already agrees with as a means for making the case for your idea. I'm super interested and super excited about where that might go. Yeah. Chasing your curiosity. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate the time you've given us today. If you guys want to learn more, everything you can find about Tamsin is at her website, tamsinwebster.com. The book was Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. And more to come. We'll have to bring you back in however much time it takes to get that book out. Awesome. I'm happily so. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. And we will catch you all next time. You've just taken your marketing knowledge to another level with this episode of Brands on Brands. But we have plenty more ways to help you build a brand that matters. Head over to BrandsOnBrands.com for resources, as well as access to our blogs, videos, and exclusive coaching sessions with your host. Be sure to visit BrandsOnBrands.com.